Hello there. You're listening to 10 Questions, where we discuss the wet plate collodion process and the photographers that create these unique images known as ambrotypes and tintypes. I'm your host, Chad Shryock, wet plate photographer for Pork Pie Photography, based in Fort Collins, Colorado. In each episode, I've asked a modern-day practitioner to sit down with me and talk about how they got involved with this vintage process, share some information on their gear and studio, and provide some valuable insights into their creative process. So whether you're just beginning to dabble your toes in the collodion ethers, or you're a seasoned silver bath expert, hang on and see what develops with 10 questions. I'd like to welcome everyone back to the next season of 10 Questions. It was nice to take a little time away from the show and plan for another lineup of great wet plate collodion artists. So if this is your first time listening, please check out our previous artists we've had on the show. But stick around now as we kick off season two of 10 Questions. In this episode, I've asked a photographer who seems to be part Indiana Jones, part Ansel Adams. He's an accomplished photographer of the American landscape, capturing images of the lighthouses of New England, graffiti on the streets of Chicago, barns across the heartland, and the swirling sandstone slot canyons of the Southwest. I'm most familiar with his wet plate work centered on the portraiture of Native American Indians. Based in Chicago, Illinois, I'd like to welcome Joseph Kane to 10 Questions. Thanks, Chad. I appreciate it. It's great stuff what you're doing. Uh, thanks. It's, it's good to finally get you on the program. I'll be honest, like some of our other guests that we've had on here, you're, you're not simply just a wet plate photographer, right? I am not. That's correct. Yeah. It looks like you've had a pretty long and prestigious career in fine art landscape photography. And I've read that your interest in photography started when you were in college and somehow you ended up in Egypt and Israel while working in archaeology. Yes. What was going on um, with that whole arrangement? <laughs> well, I was when I was in Boston College, I took I was minoring in archaeology in and my professor came up to me and says, "I think you'd be good to do these archaeological digs." So I for two summers between junior and after I graduated, they sent me to uh, Egypt and Israel on a grant and I one year I worked in the old city of Jerusalem. And one year I did uh, a dig in Caesarea, which was an old Roman city on the coast of Israel. And then we took tours with archaeologists through Egypt. So that's where my photography started, actually. And that's I still have an interest in archaeology today through photography. Nice. I, I got to ask, I mean, did, did Raiders of the Lost Ark play any factor at all in, in what you decided to go to it college for? Out. Yeah, no, it came out right when I was there, actually. <laughs> which it was, it just merged together. But so did Animal House with Toga Party. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. So, but no, it did not play any part. So you decided that, uh, hey, since I'm going over to uh, these kind of unique places, I probably ought to take a camera with me. Had had you really done much photography before that, or was this kind of your more of a well, I better keep track of, of what I'm actually digging out and, and those kind of things. Yeah. That, I took a high school class, um, a typical, you know, do a little project, use the dark room, 
but I basically learned on those trips, trial and error. Just and I carried, uh, I think, an old Canon camera with Kodachrome film and uh, black and white film. So it was great, great experience. That's where my current interest in the Native American uh, ancestral Pueblo dwellings of the Southwest. I still do a lot of photography there. And it stems all the way back from archaeology. And my father collected Native American art. So we used to drive to the Southwest when I was 10, 11, and 12 and meet with natives and their art. So that's what's, it's still, he planted the seed back then and it still goes, still growing. Yeah, that's great that some of those early experiences helped shape kind of what you wanted to do as a career and then also bring in some of those interests from the photographic aspect. Yep. So I also read that uh, you've been able to share some of the same experiences that some other well-known photographers like George O'Keefe and Ansel Adams have had in the past. I saw that you had been awarded three artist-in-residencies by the U.S. National Park Service. Which park were you located in? I, I was actually in Hubble Trading Post, which it was it's the most currently active Native American trading post in the United States. And it's located in the Navajo Nation in northern Arizona. So I had three artists in residency there. And what I did was before, I, a, I had up to this point photographed the landscape and the cliff dwellings and people would know them as the Anasazi rock art. And so once I applied for that, I decided to do portraits of Native Americans as they kept coming in as their day-to-day lives to buy food, sell their art and everything. So that's when my first portraiture work started about six years ago. Okay. So up until that point, you had been primarily focused on the landscape. Right, right. So so tell me, what was it like to have access to some of these well-known sites within the National Park System? It was great. All the people I worked with were great. Uh, They taught me things. A lot of Native Americans worked at Hubble Trading Post, so I became close with them and their family. However, I was there three... three separate times. The first time I was there, I barely knew how to do wet plate, and we can talk about that. Okay. And I only had five people show up in the 10 days I was there, and three of them worked there. So it took a while to gain trust and for people to know what was going on. And the the second year, I got four times as much. And the last time I did it, every time slot was filled up. So that's, it just took a while to get it done and gain trust to talk to the people, but it was fantastic experience. I'm in a old trading post with wood floors from the 1800s, artwork all over, famous artwork because it was a famous trading post. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt stayed there, other famous people, artists, and there's just, Native American art from the 1800s on the wall. Just a fantastic place. Yeah, so so for some of us that aren't really familiar with what the artist-in-residency system looks like, 
can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, what what's the process yeah. like to get selected for something like that? Not every national park has one, a program, but many do. So if you go online to the different parks or you Google National Park Artists in Residency, you'll find ones which do. And, you know, I was familiar with a lot of the parks, but I wanted to do culture because it was new to me at this point. So I applied and I had a, a good background. You know, I've been published in a lot of places. I was on the cover of Audubon and Sierra Club calendars. And so I kind of had a name. So they chose me. I was one of five people that year. They have musicians, jewelers, painters, potters. So I was luckily chosen for that year. And once they got to know me, they since I made free portraits of all the locals, Navajo and Hopi, they invited me back two times. So that's how that came about. You have to go through a process and it's hit or miss. You never know what's going to happen, who's looking at it. If jobs change a lot, there's a lot of transfers in the national park. So people, you could not get picked one year. If you apply the next year, someone else might choose you. So you would just have to look at the applications and keep trying. Don't get discouraged if they don't pick you. Yeah. What What's the typical duration of one of these stays there? Uh, two weeks. Two weeks. Okay. Yeah, two weeks. And you, you stay, I'm assuming, depending on which park that you might be in, you know, you could be in a cabin or... Uh, yeah, this had a ancient Navajo Hogan made out of rock with a fireplace in there. So I stayed, it was called the, quote, guest cabin, but it... It's not like your typical guest cabin. It's on the National Historic Registry. So hey, I had my own kitchen, I you know, shower. It was it was perfect. Nice, nice. Yeah. And you didn't have to deal with uh with parking, uh trying to get into the parks either. No. <laughs> no, and I even had a key to the gate. So if I had to go out to the grocery store, hardware store, I was able to go in and out even after the park was closed. Nice. And you said that that was about, what, six or seven years ago? 2017, so I applied for it in 2016. So, And I found out almost a year before I was going, except the one thing I didn't know was how to do wet plate photography. Yeah, well, let's let's get into that. Let's talk yeah. about some of your collodion work. What What was the thing that really stirred your interest in wet plate photography? I had been to a few art shows in Chicago and saw various tin types. And I figured this would be fantastic for my project that I haven't yet started. So I had to learn the process. Once I saw them, I didn't even know who the wet plate artist was at the time, but you know, like everyone, like you, you probably saw it and go, this looks great. You know, yeah. at the time, Every landscape picture was being oversaturated through Photoshop, so I was getting kind of turned off with landscape photography. Yeah. Uh, you couldn't go any farther away than doing wet plate. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things that, that always interests me is that for folks like yourself that start out with film photography and and a lot of people move into the, the digital age and, and that type of photography and you know all different equipment – why anyone would even want to go back to, to consider doing wet plate with all of the hassles and, uh, you know, yeah. just the whole learning curve for that process, you know, the, 
trying to keep consistency built in and things like that. Uh, I'm always interested to know why someone would even want to do that. <laughs> right. What's consistency? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> uh, so you said that you saw these images and you wanted to figure out how to do them. What was your process for actually learning more about tintype and, and, and how to actually well, take these images? Well, first, I, I knew how to use a large format camera. So that was easy for me just basically for my landscape photography days. And so for the process, I just looked on YouTube and then I Googled wet plate photographers in Chicago. And it, it came out, came up with a guy named Doug Hansen who lives about an hour from me. And he gave me two lessons on how to do it. Okay. So that was the first person I ever knew or contacted and learned about wet plate photography. And while I was learning from him, I think it was the second time I was there, I told him about my interest. He went on my website and said, wow, I'm embarrassed. I'm teaching you. You know more than I do. And I said, <laughs> I said, I know nothing. <laughs> I'm at your mercy. And uh, so he, he said, you're not my typical student. But he, um, he was very patient. He was a great teacher. And when I was at his house, he said, you, do you know this guy named Shane Balkowicz? And I said, I don't know Shane. So he showed me a poster. Shane took a picture of a bunch of natives. I think it might have been at Standing Rock. And then I said, well, I got to reach out to Shane just to see what his you know, connection and interest to Native Americans are. So I talked to him before I arrived at my residency. But... I think my first year, like I said, I only got like six or seven good plates because it was the first time I really was under the gun and doing it by myself. Right, um, right. But so I would say Doug Hansen is the one who really taught me. And then trial and error and faux pas teach you pretty quickly too. Exactly. Do you remember what your first image was using the process? It was a bird's nest in Doug's backyard. Okay. And yeah. uh, how did... How did that go? I mean, were it you... went pretty well. It, you know, I I poured the plate. I had a couple splash marks, but it went pretty well. I was a little surprised, but then I, I was done. I was up on my porch, photograph. I, I wanted to try it before I left, and I made a picture of the house across the street, and it wasn't working. So I, I said, Doug, you got it. So he drove an hour to my house and helped me go through the process again. And then I was on my own. So, so but, how many plates had you actually taken before you showed up for your artist residency? Maybe five. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> yep. That that's uh, definitely a trial by fire. There. <laughs> it was. <laughs> yep. So, if we examine some of your images that are centered around the Native American portraiture, why did you decide to utilize this process to capture these types of images? Because at first I wanted to, you know, like most people see natives like you saw in Hollywood. And at first I wanted to show that. And as I learned more, so that I thought the tintype process would be great for that, looking old, like you were in an old scene. And But I learned quickly that's not the way it is. And Native Americans live in two worlds, you know, their own regalia and cultural world, and then 
our current world. And um, so I decided to tell them, hey, you can dress however you want in your regalia or jeans or leather. I don't care. So now it's up to them what they want to wear. And But I find most want to go back to their regalia and uh, they want to show their grandmothers, their mothers. I always send them free prints. So I always send two because they always want to give one to their grandmother. So now I leave it up to them and I'll photograph them any which way I want to. But at first I wanted them to look old like like all of us learn from the old bad movies. You know? Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think at least from from my understanding of some of the, the Native American culture, the regalia, a lot of those things get passed down from generation to generation. Maybe exactly. it's maybe it's not the clothing, but it's a certain belt or headrest or even some of the shells that uh, that they have on their on their clothing. Yeah. And yeah. for them to some be able even to, made them. Some of their ancestors even made some of that regalia. So yeah, yeah it does mean a lot. Yeah, so I, I can see why for them it would be important to capture uh, those pieces or those articles of clothing to be able to pass down from generation to generation along with the item itself. So that's that's, that's pretty right. cool. And yeah. one woman is a Navajo midwife who drives out in the middle of the Navajo land with no doctors, electricity, or water, and she brings her own water, but she had a picture. She wanted to wear a stethoscope around her neck. So obviously well, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. It, is that the only time that you typically take native American portraiture or do you have folks it that kind of seek it, you out now still? Well, now I'm, they seek me out and around me now they're starting to call me. And I, I didn't do many Midwest like Potawatomi where Chicago is. I haven't done many, but now they're coming to me. There's a Mitchell Indian Museum in Evanston, Illinois, which is my hometown. They come to me. There's the American Indian Center in Chicago. They reach out to me. So I'm starting to get more Midwest and Chicago natives, which is good because I was born here. Right, right. But the clothing and the regalia is completely different. Unless, what they're, unless they're jingle dancers and then... They all wear what's called a jingle dress, and they dance, and that's pretty common throughout Native America. Yeah. My my wife and I had the chance to go to our first powwow here in Fort Collins yeah. uh, last year to, to visit with some friends of ours and, and see them there. And, and uh, So you must yeah. have saw some jingle dancing. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yep, the jingle yep. and that and the, and the drums, uh, drum ceremony yeah. kind of thing. So Those jingle dance, the jingle, now you can get them, they're cones, but... Natives used to make them out of old chewing tobacco cans and roll them around, and that's where the little tin and jingle noise came from. Pretty cool. Do you do you find that you tend to save the wet plate process just for those types of images, or have you used it for no, other I, things I'm, as well? I have two other main projects, and then I'll take miscellaneous tin types, but I've been doing ballerinas, and... I'm trying to get, I've been talking to the Joffrey Ballet in Chicago to try to work with them and do some uh, ballet dancers. So that's currently going on now. So I have a few on my website. And then I did one woman as the modern Madonna. And I'm using her, she's going to be in every one of the pictures, different poses, different clothing, et cetera. So those are my main three projects. 
So even though you've up until you started taking these images, you were kind of focused on landscape. Have you considered using the process for that or just too much trouble maybe? <laughs> you know, I wanted to do some of the Native American runes and um, up in Arizona, Utah, New Mexico, and Colorado, but those are they're tough hikes. So it's you need like two or three people to hike this stuff in if you wanted to do it. Yeah, that are a really strong donkey. <laughs> yeah, a donkey is right. If I had if I had one, they would let me drive up to. I could do it. I'm more worried about the chemicals though in those places. Right. I could probably deal with getting a few people to come or get your, get a, a, a llama, <laughs> but I, it's then it's the chemicals that are the issue. I don't want to spill them around some of those sacred sites. Right. Right. Yeah. So I, I'm guessing you know as you had to travel for most of these portraits, you really didn't have access to a proper dark room. What was your uh, equipment? set up for taking these types of portraits whenever you were kind of stationed at some of these places in the parks? So the darkroom I use now, it's still the same Lund Pelican case, but I modified it a little bit, but it's good for me because it folds up and I got to drive a lot of stuff out for a two-week residence in the Southwest. So it's compact and it just makes it easy for me. Yeah, have dust. You know, as you can imagine, you're from Denver. You're really in the desert, right? And uh, the dust that blows around is crazy. So, you know, it'd be hard to use the back of my truck or whatever. Right, Things right. Flap around. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if there's any good outdoor areas for wet plate. You know, I've talked to folks that are kind of in the uh, southeast, and uh, you know, they've got bugs and things like that to deal with, yeah. and everywhere else it's uh, dirt and uh, dust floating around the air. So. What, exactly. what what are some of the uh, modifications that you made to the uh, Lund system? Duct tape in certain places, you know, to make it a little more sturdy. And then they have like a solar light on top and it lights up the dark room. But I changed some of the lighting in there. I put some of my own lights in there. So that was basically it. Everything else was basically plastic. Do you share much of the process itself with your sitters whenever you're taking these images or, or do you pretty much kind of have them off to the side? I, I share it. I show them what the plate looks like first, empty. I show them what I'm going to do. I show them the inside of the dark room. And then when I'm coming out after I've developed and stopped it and before I come to the fixer, I say, come up, come and watch. And, and they all love when they, it comes alive, you know? Yeah. Yep. Everyone does, I think, and every, not just natives, but everyone who sees the process is really enthralled. Yeah, it's, a, it's very magical to see that final step it there. Is. What about your uh, chemistry that you use? Do you typically hand mix all of your chemicals or do you purchase pre mixed? I, I don't have time to hand mix them. And so I buy pre mixed chemicals from either UV, uh, UV or Bostic and Sullivan. Right. Yep. Much more Some consistency. Really get, it is. And people love uh, to get into the chemistry of it. But I don't have the time and I, I don't really have the interest. So. Yeah. No. Well, Joe, let's talk about uh, gear that you use. What type of cameras did you start with versus what you use today? 
I still use the camera I started with a Deerdorf 8x10, like a V8 camera, and I still use it. Okay. Do you typically I, shoot 8x10 size portraits then? Yep. Yep. I have 4x5 cameras from, that I use in landscape photography, but I've never tried that for wet plate. Yeah. I was going to say, for, I think for a lot of us, we, we tend to start off kind of small and work our way up to 8 by 10 and then uh, kind of kind of settle in at that spot. So yeah. you jumped I right to the that. end. Yeah, I hear the 4 by 5 it's a lot easier, less chemical problems, but I don't know. I've never tried it. No, I, did, I take that back. I tried it when I was learning with uh, Doug Hansen. We did a 4 by 5 Yeah, so. I think a lot of folks start with those uh, speed graphic cameras yep. you know they're easy to find the film pack adapters for that uh, make really nice plate holders if you put a little spacer in the back side of them and basically they're all just boxes with you know with a lens front so but i just the deerdorf camera is the same way i use my wooden four by fives in landscape so it was easy for me to go to that camera what about lenses what what's your go-to lens for portraiture I have a French lens, Gaskin Charcomay, about 300 millimeters, and I also have a Dahlmeyer 3A. So I use those mostly. If I'm doing close, I use the Dahlmeyer, and they're both Petzval lenses. And I have a Zeiss lens, an old Tesser. I use that once in a while, too. Okay. But mostly the two Petzval brass lenses. Any aperture adjustments on those lenses, or do you shoot wide open all the time? It depends, but if I'm outside, it's wide open, or maybe, because I'm usually trying to be in the shade all the time. So it's I might go to 5.6. I think I go to 5.6 a lot when I'm outside in my studio. I have a studio in Chicago. I share space with another artist, and there I use continuous lighting. So that one is five six also. What about the oldest piece of equipment that gets a lot of use? I think it's my Gaskin Charcoal lens, and then me—I'm the second oldest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Joe, if if you had the chance to photograph anybody, who would it be? Okay, this is gonna. Be tough. My my dog passed away on Thanksgiving, and I would love to photograph my dog. I didn't get a chance to, so that that would have been. I don't know if that's the person, but that's the living organism I would have photographed. Maybe Edward Weston and his sons. That would be a good wet plate portrait. Okay, I I understand the feeling completely about the little pets that we've got. I. Uh... We had to put our dog down almost a year ago now, and yeah. that day I, I attempted to take a, the last picture of that dog, and mm-hmm. and I had old old chemicals at the time, an old developer, and it, it's mm-hmm. not a really good picture, but it's it's it the last one we got, that. and and yeah, it means a lot. So, yeah. I understand that completely. What's really next for you in, in some of your creative pursuits? You've talked about your series with the ballerinas. Are there other things that maybe you've got in mind that you haven't actually shot any of the image images yet? No, it's still, I have some ideas with ballerinas. I just haven't gotten the chance to do them all. So that's mainly the one. And I'm going to still do, I've 
been invited to two places this fall to go do two types of natives. One's in Taos, New Mexico. It's a native-owned gallery and fashion designer, and he invited me. And then there's a trading post in Bluff, Utah. Do you get to Moab at all from Colorado? I have been there at least once. We've got a Jeep, and that's like the mecca for Jeeps to be out in Moab. Arches National Park is just fantastic. I mean, if if folks have not been there, it's just amazing to to look around that place. It it just, I mean, so I've lived in Colorado now for getting close to 12 years. And, of course, the the Rockies are so majestic and massive and, and everything. But something about Arches is just incredible feeling just seems like a a really unique place to be with the the landscapes that are there so if you go two hours south of arches on highway 191 you you run into the cedar mesa what's called the bears ears national monument and that has tons of cliff dwellings native american art from that are a thousand years old and you walk into the canyons, there's no fences, no national park people pass. And I'll be, that's where I'd like to go when I go down there. So I'll be going there in, at the end of April just to do regular photography. So I focus on that also. Nice, nice. Yeah, I've uh, been to Mesa Verde once. Again, really amazing place. I can't imagine what it would be like trying to haul your photographic <sighs> gear down into those cliff dwellings though to be able to take some images yeah. and i now i use a digital camera but up to like four years ago i was still carrying a four by five into those canyons so you know, some are like four miles one in way and then you got to climb up about 800 feet sometimes but you forget it when you see the transparency or final results <laughs> you kind of forget about all that stuff yeah have you got any interesting or unique stories? Maybe something that's happened to you while you've been photographing people or maybe ran into some interesting folks while you've been out on the road? I ran into more folks when I was doing landscape photography. And that was some famous landscape color photographers. And even one good thing was uh, I was in Maine once and I, took a stab and I looked up Paul Campanigro's address. So I found it and I went to his house and I ended up staying there like six hours and we traded a print. And so I have one of his prints on my wall and he has one of mine. That was a great story. Nice. It was a great time. You know, it's like seeing one of your idols and, you know, you walk up to the door, I'm surprised you didn't throw something at me, but it ended up being fantastic. Yeah. I guess, speaking of idols, uh, who, who are some of the photographers that you look up to that inspire your work? Well, I like so many of them. There's so many great photographs out there. I look at their Morris photographs, but there's, Weston was my favorite from the beginning, um, but there's a color one named Christopher Burkett. Are you familiar with him? Color landscape. He's fantastic. I am not, no. Yeah. You'll have to look him up next. Elliot Porter, I liked. And then I used to hike with this 
photographer, he passed away. His name's Ray McSavany, and we used to photograph in the Southwest and hike together. And that was good times, too. You know, you really, when you're out there doing that, you're, you're letting everything else go, and it's, you're just creating. So, so you, you could have a good time with a whole bunch of people like that. Have you gotten the chance to, to meet any other wet plate photographers other than Doug in your travels? I went, I went to visit Shane once before COVID. I wanted to see his studio, which is unbelievable. But I worked with him. There's a young guy in Denver who used to work at my photo lab in Boulder. It was called uh, Photocraft. And he came to me. When I was at Bluff, Utah at the trading post once uh, fall doing local people, local natives. And he came and we worked together. And I just said he was learning, and it was fine. So that one, we actually worked together next to each other. Uh, So it came out pretty good. Who else have I... I think that's it. It's such a a tight-knit group of folks, you know, that if people are out traveling, I I always kind of think about, I wonder if there's any wet platers, you know, around this area. (laughs) Or anybody that you know, that would either stop in here and visit with me or I, I could visit with them and check out their studio and see how they do things. I I think it's pretty interesting to see how different folks kind of tackle some of the same issues that we all I have with the with process. That. Yeah, well, that's funny. I was in Taos last September and a guy saw me doing it and he came up to me and he ended up, he was from Rochester, New York, and he ended up in Taos and he saw me doing it. He looked and he goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm doing tin type. He goes, oh, I do tin types. I learned in Rochester. So he hung <laughs> out for a day, you know, just to watch, you know. And he was asking questions. You know, you learn something from everyone you talk to who knows about it. You, you say that you learned from, from Doug. Were there any manuals or books or things that you had researched before you met with him just to make the process a little easier or... Did you go into it pretty blind? Pretty blind. I did. I watched YouTube videos. And then after Doug and after my first trip, I bought a few uh, books. And I read them just to make sure if I I was having issues, was it covered in these books? And I was more, I was mostly interested in the troubleshooting, you know. So, you know, what caused the oysters, what... Why is this like that? Why did this part develop? You know, one time I didn't varnish a plate for a while and the collodion was old. So I started varnishing it and the, and the thing disappeared on me. It was nothing. <laughs> so, yeah. so I said, what the hell was that? You know, so you got to go look and then you go back and look and there's answers out there. Right. Yeah. You know, there's groups on, online, which I think I that's where I found, I saw your name through the various, there's some wet plate groups on Facebook and you could ask questions and most people are pretty helpful. Yeah, I agree. That's something we've talked about on the show quite a few times is that there are a lot of different online communities out there where people are very willing to give information to others. You know, it's, it's not like it's this big secret. Uh, there are plenty of folks that are willing to share what they've learned and and help people out when they try to get through some of those initial struggles, just trying to get into the process. I think I reached out to Mark Osterman and he, we emailed a few times and he helped me on a few things and uh, he still does workshops. Yeah. And if someone's interested in doing it, 
he might be one way to do it, but I, I'm not sure how many workshops are actually out there. Are you? I don't. You know, it seems like uh, a lot of the folks that I talk to do do occasional workshops with kind of small okay. groups of people. So I, I think there are a lot of them out there, but I think there are also a lot of folks out there that are kind of like me that just, uh, again, just watched the YouTube videos and, and bought some books and thought, well, I'm just going to dive into this and see what happens, you know, so. How did you, what got you into it? Uh, I'm going to turn the role, I'm turning the, yeah. I'm reversing the role. <laughs> yeah, my, I, I've talked about this a few times. My, my dad was a big uh, Civil War kind of uh, scholar, you know, right. and he was really into it and had a lot of books at his home. And I would take a look through all of these different Civil War uh, documents and uh, publications that he had and, and was just really amazed by the photography that was there. I mean, I, I'm not a photographer by by any means, by background or training. I'm an engineer, but I was really enthralled by, you know, how were they able to do this 160 years ago? Uh, right. to create these types of images. So that's that's really what got me into it. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, they still have recreation sites for Civil War battles, and I'm sure a few wet platers go to those. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, that would be fun, too. I guess, Joe, what uh, advice would you have for somebody that's thinking about getting into the process? You know, what what are some things that you could share with them that would either make it easier for them or at least get them through some of the the tough parts that you struggled with patience is the first and you have to have a passion and drive for photography and i don't care what you're photographing you just need the passion and you need patience and don't let a couple things beat you that would be my big advice yeah let, let's think a hundred years from now joe what would you like your legacy in photography to be there probably won't be one, but um, I don't know. They just look at an image and it moves them. You know, that's basically it. I'm not, I don't need a big legacy or, you know, as long as my work moves someone, or, that's all that it counts. It moves, and it moves me also, but I won't be around in a hundred years. <laughs> do you do I guess any... I'm a little selfish. I, uh, I do it for myself too. Well, you know? right. So, right. So I have to say, and I'm still in it, and I still like it and love it, so who knows? But, yeah, that's what – I guess that's my legacy. At some time, I'd like to do a book, maybe, maybe on the Southwest Native Americans, but we'll see. Now, you mentioned that you provide prints to some of your Native sitters. Do you – I guess you keep all of the original plates then? Yeah, I gave them a few plates away, but I generally print and – with a good scanner, like uh, Epson 850, a few of the better ones I had drum scanned, or not drum scanned, flat. I sent them to my lab and they scanned it on a very high-tech flatbed. And then I got the digital file, and I print all my prints up to 16 by 20. If someone wants something larger, I have to go to a lab. But I like making my own prints. It's still part of the process and still connected to the original and you're working on the final print so I, that's what i do i make a i usually send everyone 11 by 14 prints okay and, and do you typically shoot on aluminum or glass aluminum especially in the southwest you know those things the dust and the uh you know rocks out there it's too dangerous and so i 
I'm fine with that. I know people think the black show better on glass, and I try to look at that and determine that, but I think it's hard for my eyes to tell, but uh, if it, people see it, I guess it happens. You know? Can you notice a difference? Have you tried both or no? You know, I've, I've shot on both. I, I do whenever black glass was more available. And, and I think right. maybe the company, uh, Spectrum, I think maybe they sold off and maybe someone else has picked up their manufacturing process. So I've not purchased any of their new glass that's been available here for the last couple of years. Uh, but you have some of the old stuff. I do really like the look on the black glass. Yeah. I've done some clear stuff and, and coat them with asphaltum. Right, uh, it's, right in the back. Right? Yeah, it's, it's a messy kind of stinky right. process but honestly i really like the way those images look yeah. just being able to look through the glass and and see the image especially for folks that you know maybe they not that they wear like uh, shirts that have writing on them or anything but they're just right. used to seeing them themselves portrayed not in that mirror image right and so it just right. gives them That's another right. option uh, to, yeah, to be able to some, do those on some of my prints i'll flip them if there's writing or something. and So, but it's very rare. And the other thing about the tin is most of my Native American images are made outdoors, you know. And so it's just, and I carry them and I drive all over on four-wheel drive roads. So it's just too hard. But I've made, in my studio, I've made glass plate images and I still might do more. Yeah, one thing that I've, I've, kicked around a little bit, at least since talking with Borut Petrolin is, you know, he does a lot of clear glass amber types and makes a lot of negatives and does a multitude of printing out processes. So I may check into that a little bit more. Does he do his own prints? He does. Yes. And does he do a darkroom print or does he scan the negative? He probably does a darkroom. Darkroom prints. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I never used to like the digital paper, but they've gotten so good now. It's, I mean, you could almost look like a darkroom print. Well, Joe, how do people that want to see your work or, or maybe even get their portrait taken by you, how do they reach out to you? They can look at my website and contact me through there at www.josephkanephoto.com, and it's K-A-Y-N-E. Not to be confused with Kanye, it's Kane. Gotcha. So w- com. And then you also have accounts with Instagram. Yeah, I Instagram. think I see most of your stuff there. Yeah, Kane Photo, right. It's ha- at Kane Photo, right. What's the impact of social media on being able to share your images to kind of the mass market? What impact has that had on you? It's been great because people that some people reach out for me because of that natives reach out that they've seen on social media. So it works for promotion and it actually works on getting some work and people reaching out. So I think it's a positive thing. I think it's good because sometimes you also, you know, you might not care what other people think, but sometimes you get good feedback. You know, there's a lot of trolling also, but, you know, you take the good and don't listen to the crap. Yeah. Yep. Do you find yourself in communication with a lot of folks online? I mean, do people reach out to you and ask Once you about while, your gear yeah, not, and those kind of things? Or yeah, they they do, and uh, and it goes pretty well. And 
once in a while I get emails or we'll talk back and forth occasionally on the phone, but it's not a lot, but it's enough, you know, it's good. And like you said, everyone seems to want to help everyone. It's not a great competition. Yeah. Well, Joe, I, I do appreciate you taking some time to sit down with me and have a conversation about Collodion. I think it's pretty amazing. A lot of the work that you've done over the last few years, uh, that's really how I started following you, uh, you know, a few years back and seeing a lot of your Native American wet plates that you've made. I am really impressed with what you've been able to do. And, and I mean, honestly, I think maybe you touched on this. I mean, it, it does take a lot of effort to be able to get into that circle of folks to where they actually trust you, right? That's right. Yeah. And that's, it's hard. It's trust. And that's probably true with any kind of photography, but it's more with natives because of the, you know, the genocide and persecution. So that's, that's probably the issue. And it's getting easier too. a lot of older people, at first didn't like to be photographed, but now everyone has a, a cell phone and there's selfies going all over with the kids and everything. So that's changing a bit. Yeah. Well, Joe, thanks for being on the show and sharing your insights into the process. And hey, uh, Thanks. I really I appreciate what you're doing. It's great. And you too keep going. Oh, absolutely. And, and if you do make it out to uh, the Colorado area and uh, happen to be around Fort Collins, please give me a call and we'll we'll get together and grab we a beer. Pour some fat tires. That's yeah. right, absolutely. Yeah. All righty, thanks, Jan. Thanks, Joe. It. Okay, bye bye. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode and maybe even picked up some insights that will help you along in your own wet play journey. I'd love to hear from you on who you'd like to have on in a future episode. So send me a message and follow our Instagram account at Ten Questions with any feedback. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast provider. Thanks for listening to me, Chad Shryock, and my expert guests. And I look forward to you joining me again in the coming weeks for a new episode of 10 Questions. Questions.